0: So Luke 17, here's where we're at in Luke. Jesus in about chapter nine, middle of it, begins to make his way down from Galilee to Jerusalem. On his way, he has a bunch of conversations. It's life isn't the destination, it's the journey. So Jesus is discipling this crowd of people as he walks down and talks with them. Chapter 16 concludes with this story we call Abraham's bosom. It's about a rich guy and a poor guy that have a terrible relationship. The rich guy has tons. The poor guy has nothing. He's laid at the rich guy's gate, so he's probably paralyzed, and the rich guy just walks by him. In that parable among many things, or that story depends on how you take it, tells us something about relationships, that they matter eternally. How we are treating other image bearers echoes throughout eternity. So that concludes chapter 16, talking about relationships. So chapter 17 builds back up, and there's really two things that are covered here. It's how to live in community, relationships. Is there anything harder than that? What did Jesus say? By this shall all men know you are my disciples. By your bumper stickers. (laughs) By your giant print King James Version leather bound Bible with a little naked baby on the front. Nope. By your love one for another. Why? Because that's hard and it's not normal. So Jesus, here's how you live in community and then the second step is here's how you grow in maturity. So that's what he covers here in chapter 17 as he's taking this walk with his disciples. So chapter 17 verse 1. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better. If you had two choices, here's the better choice. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. I call this the mafia Jesus here. Not cement shoes, a cement necklace. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Here's how you live in community. Two things. Don't stumble. That's the negative, And do forgive. If we're going to live in community different than the rich man and Lazarus, which was a failure, if we're going to do this better, then you can't stumble people and you have to forgive people. And I love verse one. Temptations to sin are sure to come. I have it underlined in my Bible. You know what that tells me? I'm normal. That the way things happen for me, I'm normal. You can read your Bible and you can pray 24-7. It doesn't change the fact that temptations are going to come. It's still, these things are coming for all of us. There is no protection for them. They're hunting you down. Ceaseless, aggressive. It's coming for you. So I don't know it was, five, six years ago. There was this guy who had moved up from Northern California, church in Northern California, and he'd moved up here and he had kind of become friends with this young crew here and he was telling them that he had attained sinless perfection. I'm like, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? I'm like, really? So this guy, you're telling me he does Philippians chapter 2 perfectly, that he has put on the mind of Christ that he esteems people better than himself, that he never looks after himself. He looks after all the things of other people, right? He's a perfect servant. Really? I mean, if that is true, how does that man ever get through a four-way stop? No, you, no, you, no, you go. He's there like eight hours esteeming others. I say, no way, it's ridiculous. Temptations are coming for you. There's no such thing. So here's what Jesus says. He says, be very careful. Be careful through whom they come. And he says, spells out, better than a millstone's hung around your neck than you cause one of these little ones to sin. Probably immature new believers. These little ones. Because they're a little bit easier to stumble. Now what could that mean? It could mean... People that are just bad to be around. Book of Proverbs, right? It warns against certain kind of men and it warns, warns about a certain kind of woman. Like, look out for these people. They will steer you down the wrong way, right? They'll suck you back into the garbage that you got out of and you'll find yourself waking up in the back of a truck, missing your wallet with a new neck tattoo headed to Mexico. So stay away from them. Could be talking about that kind of person. Could be talking about bad Bible teachers. They use God's word, not to edify and build up the body, but as Peter would say, for selfish, to get, make merchandise of, to grab, to take, and they're hypocrites, and when they get exposed, when hypocrites get exposed, pulpit hypocrites get exposed, does that damage the church? Oh, man, nothing worse. We know that in Grant's Pass. The damage just echoes on and on and on. Could could be that. Or we can stumble this way, new believers. It's Romans 14 and 15. Great passage. And it says this, don't argue about doubtful disputations. Don't get all involved in the second and third tier issues. And Paul names a couple, what you eat or what you drink or what day you go to church. Don't worry about that stuff. How much of our conversation is about stuff that doesn't matter? Second, third tier stuff that we begin to make it more important than it is. And the whole point in that chapter 14 and 15 is this. You have freedom in Christ, no doubt, mature believer. But never let your freedom cause another Immature believer to stumble. So in chapter 15, verse twenty, he just says this. You who are strong in the faith, you have been walking for a while. You know it, you understand it. You that are strong in the faith, put up with a weak one. Suck it up. Paul goes this far on this. He says in 1 Corinthians 8, 13, he says, if eating meat causes one of my brothers to stumble... I'll never eat meat again. How radical is that? That's a radical commitment to community. I will do whatever is necessary. To me, it's crazy. Because when I read, man shall not live on bread alone, to me, the rest of it is, he also needs tri-tip. It's in the Greek or the Hebrew, one of those, I don't know which one. And Paul's like, no way. I'll become a vegan in order not to stumble somebody. That's how high of a view Paul had on community. He generously flexes his own freedom for somebody else's faith. And the more mature you get, the less things you should dispute about. The more generous you should be, the less it should be. Jesus and sin, and that's about it. To me, those are fighting words. Other than that, hmm, let's talk. Be really, really careful because this thing matters so much. So Proverbs kind of bad people, could be them. Could be bad Bible teaching, no doubt. Or could be me when I start dabbling in gray areas and causing a young person to have all kinds of problems because of the liberties that I enjoy. And I gotta suck up my own liberty and say, okay, no problem, I don't wanna stumble you. Because community is more important. So don't stumble and then forgive. Pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. (laughs) We don't use rebuke very often, do we? Rebuke kind of has a bad connotation, no doubt. It probably got the bad connotation from someone that got rebuked, right? If you've been rebuked, it has a bad connotation to it. Rebuke him. What does that mean? doesn't mean to blast them. It means, it says, if your brother, it means inside the circle of community, right? You're not rebuking somebody out there. It is never a good idea to rebuke a stranger. You'll get shot or something. It's within the community of people that you know and you are with and in in your crew, someone hurts you. Someone says something. And you do it like this. Hey, man, can we talk? I don't understand what happened here. Can you explain this to me? That's how I always start, right? Not blasting them, but hey, I don't understand this situation. Could you clue me in on this? And a lot of times it's just some game of telephone now. Oh, okay, no problem. But if it really is legitimate, hey man, that hurt me. And then I always want to call somebody up to what God has for them. Man, you're better than that. You're better than that. And you're, that that's below you. I know you. I don't want to see you get ripped off from that. You're better, right? Remember when I taught this in the ignorance series, I used the scuba diver Brookings illustration. You guys remember that? Okay, I'll say it again. <laughs> no problem. I got time, kind of. So imagine you're over at Brookings and you're out fishing on whatever, you know, a paddleboard or something, and your legs are dangling in, and a shark comes up and bites off your leg and you swim in and you're surviving and you're air flowing up to OHSU and the cameras come in. And they're like, bro, you got bit by a shark, man. Yeah, I got bit by a shark. Well, are you bitter and angry at that shark? No. Why? Because this is what sharks do. Sharks bite legs, right? He was just sampling me. I guess I didn't taste good. All right? that's, oh, it's no problem. That's what sharks do. Okay, but rewind that. You're out there fishing, whatever. And your brother in law comes up with a giant knife and cuts off your leg. You're brought in, you're air flighted up to OHSU, cameras come in. Hey, your brother did this. Are you mad at him? Yes. Why? Because that's not how image bearers are supposed to act. So that's what the rebuke is it's, man, I'm calling you. are acting like an animal right now, you're acting in a way that's not fitting a brother, fitting an imago day. That's what a rebuke is. You call them up to the higher calling God has for them. Well, what if they don't repent, Matt? All right. You still forgive them. Because this is pay attention to yourself. You need to be set free. You need to not let that bitterness get into your heart where all of a sudden you're just angry, gritted teeth, can't sleep, miserable, because you're holding on to it. And they don't even know it. All right? Unforgiveness is you drinking poison thinking it will kill the other person. No, you just let it go. And it might take you seven times every day where you're going, God, forgive them. Help me to forgive them. It might take that, but you're doing it for yourself. And you're saying, God, I trust you with them. Vengeance is yours. You'll repay. I won't be overcome with this evil. I'm not going to let that happen in my heart. So for your sake, you just forgive them. Say, like, "ha." Oh. Notice how the disciples respond. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. What did they just say there? Hey, that is hard. Oh man, repentance is hard. Jesus agrees. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and plant it in the sea. And it would obey you. Jesus agrees. Yeah, it takes a miracle. Fully. Forgiveness is as hard as anything in life. If you're sitting here and you've never struggled with forgiveness, you haven't been hurt hard enough yet. And I hope you're not. But there is nothing probably in this life more difficult than forgiveness. It takes a miracle. So Jesus says, if you just have a grain of mustard seed faith. Interesting saying. How do you measure someone's faith? Can you weigh it? Can you be like, he's got 10 pounds of faith? Oh, that dude's got 100 pounds of faith. No. Can you see it? No. Tape measure it? Uh uh-uh. uh. How do you measure faith? Here's the way I think you have to think about faith. Faith is like a window, right? It can be a window like this, giant window, or it can be a little peephole, it's a window. It doesn't matter the size of the window, it matters what you see through the window. The object of your faith is what matters. Are you looking and trusting in Jesus? That's all that matters. Faith is just a window. Whether it's a tiny peephole or a giant thing, doesn't matter. Are you looking and trusting in Jesus that he can create in you a clean heart, that he can renew a right spirit in you, that he can change the way you think about that person? Are you trusting in him? That's what Jesus is saying. It's faith in Jesus that matters. And this is a giant issue. Because Jesus in Matthew 6:15, one of the puzzling little verses Jesus gives, he says in Matthew 6, 15, he says this. He says, if you don't forgive, God's not going to forgive you. Whoa. What's that all about? So at the end of this text, it says, you must forgive him, verse four. It's a big deal. So what does that mean, Matt? I think we understand forgiveness incorrectly. I think in our minds we have this kind of idea that, that what forgiveness is, it's like two doors in your brain, right, in your mind. You have an indoor that you receive God's forgiveness in and then you have this outdoor that you can then give forgiveness to other people. Like there are two separate channels. I don't think that's right. If you wanna use the door analogy, I think forgiveness is like a revolving door. And that revolving door, if it's spinning, it's bringing God's forgiveness in and it's also extending forgiveness out. But like little kids, we can get inside that revolving door and we can just stop. And then what happens? Forgiveness can't get in and forgiveness can't get out. I think that's a better analogy. And so God's not saying, hey, I'm trying to hold something from you. No, it's like a revolving door. Man, just let that thing spin understand how you've been forgiven, receive it, and it just starts to spin that door, and then you'll begin to give it out. It'll naturally, beautifully happen. It's God, help me see the person I'm mad at, their humanity, and help me see my own sinfulness and start that door up so that I begin to extend forgiveness. And it can be daily. This can be a daily thing for some people. I've talked with people and counseled with people. They're like, it comes up all the time. I say, every t- if it's seven times a day, you're saying, Jesus, you're the object of my faith. You're the creator of my faith. Give me the faith to forgive because I don't want this to take root in my heart. Community is built on these two. Don't stumble people and forgive people. And then when we have community, the goal is to grow into maturity. So now we start looking at, How do you grow into maturity? Verse seven Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly? And serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants, and we have only done what was our duty. Mature believers understand what it means to be a servant. There's a way to serve God where we think, because I've done this, I've made God indebted to me. That is a recipe for bitter anger at God because he doesn't play according to our rules. That's not what this is saying. It's dangerous. And what I found in my life is this. There is a giant difference between serving and being a servant, giant difference. It was probably seven years ago. In February, it will be seven years. So my younger brother lost his kids' to DHS. They call us and they said, hey, would you take them? Man, my house is full. It's not a big house. I've got five kids of my own. My youngest at that time was 18 months old. I'm in seminary, got Edgewater going on, got a lot. Of my, I did not want anything more to do plate was full. And I was like, are you kidding me, God? Really? Huh? Don't I serve you enough? About that time, I read this passage. It was one of the most convicting passages I've ever read because it was like God said, Matt, you're trying to serve me, but you're not really being my servant. You want to put in your eight hours and be like, okay, God, you got it now? I'm going to do my thing. I've worked in the field now. I'm done. But you're coming in and I'm saying, no, there's more to do. Time to cook the meal. Time to serve some more because you're a servant. It humbled me. And there came a point where I just had had to say, okay, Lord. All right, you win. I'll tell you what. I haven't grown more from probably any single thing in my life than those foster care kids. It's grown me as a pastor, as a man, as a husband. I've seen my wife in a new light. Like she's just every day my hero. I'm like, you're unbelievable. And those kids, Harry, the heroin addicted baby we got day one. He's my mentor, man. I've learned more from that baby than probably anyone else in my life. wasn't God saying, man, I'm trying to crush you and get more, man, this is the way you grow, man. You're my servant. I want the best for you. Buck up. Trust me. Do you have faith like a mustard seed? Do you trust me? And when I got that figured out, you know what? I'm not here to serve God. I am his servant. And what he asks, I obey. Man, it's so much better. It's big. It's healthy. It's mature. Mature. Believers. learn. We don't serve God We are his servants, Luke 7 through 10. Next, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. And they lifted up their voice saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. How do you measure maturity? I think it's gratitude. That's how you measure maturity. So you got this leper. Um, Has anyone here ever met a leper? Yeah, it's coming back a little bit because if you eat, I think it's an armadillo, right? You can get, it's called Hansen's disease now. So note to self, don't eat raw armadillo. Just not a good idea. Not that probably any of you are tempted to do that, but you can learn more here than just the Bible. You can learn some health lessons, right? So I've met one and it was over in India. And in India, when I'm over there, it's like, If there's something dangerous, they have to show it to me. They're like, Pastor Matt, come here. It's a 15-foot-long python. You've got to see it. Yeah, not really. Pastor Matt, we caught a king cobra. you got to come see it. I don't want to see it, right? So um, we're at this village, and I just hear them. Pastor Matt, I'm like, oh, no, what is it? They're like, we found a leper. And at first I'm thinking, like, my brain was not working. I'm like, like a lion leper? Like, cool. No, like a leprosy leper. I'm like, what? I don't want to see it. Take Jason Folk's dad. He can see her, right? But I, I did. I went over. Her name was Almahad. And she comes up and she had just no fingers. So just, it, it, was, it was very strange. Um, her ears were not normal. And, and you could see on her face that they're just, the, the, the proportions were wrong on her face. So you're like, wow, and she's wanting to touch you, right? I'm like, aha, okay, yes, I have faith, I won't die, right? All that's going through my head. So today, you see a leper, and you can get cured, right? It's, get on some medication, you can be cured, but there's a curse for you. 2,000 years ago, huh, death sentence. no community. No family, nothing. You were pushed out. You had to walk around saying, unclean. This guy's a leper. But even worse, he's a Samaritan. Do you guys know who the Samaritans were? The Samaritans were a reminder to anyone who was an Israelite of national failure. It'd be like uh, the fall of Saigon for us, right? So it was us giving up the war that we'd fought for over 10 years in Vietnam and just saying, that's it, we're out. The helicopter's pulling off the embassy, you know, people trying to hold on to it, more getting out, just crazy. It's us saying, ha, we can't do it anymore. It'd be like that times a thousand, because what had happened was in 700 B.C., 721, the Assyrians came down, destroyed the 10 northern tribes, took a bunch of them off, brutal, really brutal people. Fish hook in the mouth, just line people up, jerk them, and, and run them 1,000 miles away. Just crazy. And then they repopulated it with new people. And the new people were Assyrians. And they took Assyrian brides, and they had children. The children from that half Assyrian, half Jewish people were called the Samaritans. And not only were they a reminder of their national failure, they started to adopt some of the practices of the Assyrians. It's called syncretism. They took a little bit of Yahweh and a little bit of Assyrian religions and they just kind of put them in a blender and they came up with a brand new religion. So they were ethnically, ah, they were historically, ah, and they were religiously, ah. They were not liked lights, shunned, half-breeds. You know what's interesting? What brings them together? A disease. What forms a community of a Samaritan and some Jews? An illness, a disease. It's interesting to me, like, what disease can do or what sin can do. Like if the community of faith ostracizes some, some group of people, often they form a new like, community over here of ostracized people, of enemies, normally enemies. It's interesting because that's what happened right here. So here's what happens. Jesus says to them, hey, go to the priest. And you're going to be healed. And as they're walking, all of a sudden, they're noticing something like, Abraham, your nose what about it? You have one, bro. Right? And they start giving, for the first time in years, high fives instead of high ones. Like, we got our fingers back. And only one of them turns around and comes back. And what's fascinating to me is this. Jesus looks at all 10 and says to all 10, go to the priest. He doesn't say, except for you, Samaritan, because you got some kind of mixed up religion and you can't go to the priest. Right? He includes this Samaritan as a son of Abraham. And Jesus does what he does so often. He makes the wrong person the hero of his story. All the right people, the nine right people, right? They fail. It's the leprous Samaritan who becomes the hero. Because here's what religion does. Religion always measures maturity by conformity, right? You conform to this standard. So you can very easily tell a good Muslim, right? He dresses a certain way. She'll dress a certain way. Five times a day, they'll get down on a prayer mat. They'll pray. You can tell a good Amish person, right? They got the beard. They got the top hat. They're driving in a buggy. You can, they conform to a standard. And you can measure Ah, they're good. Jesus doesn't work that way. The best illustration of the two I've heard is this like, like, religion's like a corral. You know who's in by who's inside the corral. You know who's in who's got the brand on them, right? Those are in. Those are my cows the, or my horses, whatever it is. They may want to get out. They may hate it in there, but it doesn't matter. They're inside. I got them. That's religion. It corrals, it brands has a certain look. Jesus, though, you know what Jesus is like? He's like a watering hole. And he draws people in, different kinds of people, all kinds of people, out of necessity. I have to get a drink of that water. Have you ever seen this picture? I don't know if you got it up. Right? I think it might be Photoshopped, but I don't care. I still like it. Right? That's what Jesus does. Normal enemies, normal people that wouldn't get along. Jesus, it's, it's I, I must drink of this water. It's a, it's a direction of life. It's not corralled in and kept tight and neat and tidy. It's, no, I'm drawn because you alone have the water of life. And then when you arrive, you, you have nothing but gratitude, Are you kidding me? You made me well, right? There are 10 people that are healed. Only one of them is made well. And the word well here, it's the Greek "zodso," And it's used for the full orb of what we get through salvation. Yeah, they're healed. And one day they would die. The one that came back and expressed gratitude, was saved, was made well, was zodso by the water of life. Gratitude. I have this quote by Ann Voskamp from her book, 1,000 Gifts. It goes like this, quote, if God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything we need? If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust With the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on the cracked lips. How will he not also graciously give us all things he deems best and right? He's already given us the incomprehensible. You'll be made well when you realize he's the water of life. And I'm thankful. Maturity is measured with gratitude like this leper. And then finally, lastly, being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. (laughs) It should be underlined by every Bible prophecy dude. Nor will they say, look, here it is. Or therefore, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. All right, so these are the Pharisees. Pharisees are Bible students. They knew this from the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament keeps telling us there is a better kingdom coming. Right? I'll give you some examples. Genesis 49. Jacob prophetically speaks over all of his sons. He gets to Judah and he makes this incredible proclamation about Judah. There's a king coming from you, and when this king comes, oh, it's gonna be awesome. You'll tie your donkey to your choicest vine. Now, let me ask what happens if you tie a donkey to your best vine? He's gonna eat it, right? What's being said by that is this, you're going to have so much, so much abundance that you're going to let your donkeys, one of the lowest animals, just chow down. Happy donkeys, right? That's what's being said. It's coming like that. You're going to, it says, wash your clothes in wine. There's going to be such an abundance of wine, this symbol of joy, this symbol of celebration. There's going to be such an abundance of it. You're going to hook a barrel of it up to your washing machine. That's how much you're going to have, right? It's just massive. Instead of water, you're going to use wine. By the way, in John 2, the very first miracle Jesus does is he turns water into wine, and it's a direct parallel back to that. I'm that king. I'm giving you abundance of wine like water, right? So there's a king coming. He's going to do this for you, right? You're going to have super white teeth. You're going to be healthy, it goes on to say. It's like Lake Wobegon, right? Where all the women are strong and all the men are good looking and all the children are above average. Like it's, this is coming. This kingdom is coming. And it just keeps going. You read Isaiah, Isaiah 65, verse 17, all the way down. There's coming this kingdom where uh, if a person dies at a hundred years of age, he'll die as a baby. Just long, productive, incredible lives where lions will eat Straw like an ox, we're gonna change the very systems of ecology. Like, it's gonna be incredible, right? Or Ezekiel, read Ezekiel 46, 47, and 48, right? Ezekiel has OCD, no doubt, but a brilliant book. In 47, he describes this city. It's a garden city with a river running through it. Brilliant and beautiful and incredible. And then in chapter 48, he gives all these crazy dimensions But the last verse of Ezekiel says this about this garden city. It says the name of that city is Yahweh is there. That finally the unification of heaven and earth again, what was divided and broken all the way back in Eden is now made right again. You and I walk and talk with our creator that the name of the city is Yahweh's here, right? But it begins in chapter 46 with this whole description of the coming prince. There's coming this prince, this ruler, this king. He's coming, he's bringing it, right? I can go just on and on and on and on. So they had this category, right, about hey, there is a kingdom coming. And they ask about it. Now what they expected was this, a Judas Maccabee kind of character. If you know history, in 165 BC, Judas Maccabee and his five boys, they come in and they kick a really bad dude out named Antiochus Epiphanes. And they free Israel, and Israel's free. So their thing was this. When the kingdom comes in, we're going to have all kinds of wine. Man, we're going to have health. We're going to have incredible wealth here. And we're going to give the Romans the boot. So they're asking that. So what's Jesus' answer? It's already here. Why would Jesus say that? Because he just cleansed the leper. Part of the same thing, if you read the Old Testament, is when the kingdom comes, disease like leprosy will be done away with. Right? So he's giving them an answer. And then that's all he gives them. It's already here. Pay attention. It's already here. And then he turns and it says, he says to his disciples, the days are coming. When you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the son of man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation Rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who's in the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in the night, there'll be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There'll be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Say law. Right? You guys, that's clear as mud, right? You got it? Let's go. (laughs) Very, very fascinating section of scripture. So, verse 21, it's here. And the rest of this text is, look for it. Right? You're going to be looking for it. It's here, but you're going to be looking for it. It's here, but it's also coming. So the idea from this, and there's lots of other texts like this. The idea from this is what's called inaugurated eschatology. Eschatology means last days. Inaugurated means it started. So, Um, the catchphrase of it is already not yet. There's an already not yetness to the kingdom. Jesus comes as king and every king has his kingdom. So it began 2,000 years ago. And we still see his kingdom in communities like this right here. Communities that the strong say, I'll suck it up and not eat meat in order to not offend you. Communities where forgiveness is the rule seven times in the same day. Communities where we are servants to each other. Communities where we're thankful for the water that's been given to us, the water of life. That we are right now this outpost, a sneak preview of the coming kingdom. It's already been inaugurated. It's already happening here. What God wants to happen through eternity has begun in you and in me, right? Right? So Jesus is super intentional here. And he keeps referring to himself a certain way. Did you pick it up? How does Jesus refer to himself over and over in this text? Shout it out. Son of man. What is that a reference to? Does me know? Daniel what? Daniel 7. Right? I'll read it for you. I've got time. Plenty of time. So, Daniel has these visions and these nightmares, and then all of a sudden, he sees something. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Skip down to verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, this guy's the cloud rider, massive theme in the Old Testament. There came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What is Jesus saying? That's me over and over in this text to these Bible students who knew exactly what he was doing. I'm that one. I'm the cloud rider. I'm the son of man who's come for my kingdom, right? This, it's called an enthronement text. It's when Jesus is enthroned where he rightfully belongs next to the father, right? So how do, how do mature people take this? I got four minutes. So, yeah, verse 37, the, the disciples, the close ones, they're like, where, Lord? Where is your kingdom? Because we're going to bunker down, man. We're going to get our guns and our gold and our AR-15s, and we're going to store some bottled water, and we're doing it, man. And What does Jesus say? Like a cryptic phrase, doesn't he? Where, Lord? Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It's like, What? Here's what he's saying, right? We're not talking location here anymore. It's like this. If you see a bunch of vultures circling around, what do you know? Down below, there's a dead body. You don't have to see the dead body to know there's a dead body down there. So what Jesus is saying is, listen, guys, you're the vultures. There's no where to this. You're the vultures. You're the ones when people see you, they'll know the kingdom's there. He's given a perfect analogy of what we're supposed to be. You and I are vultures, right? If we were an NFL team, we'd be called the vultures. (laughs) When people see our lives and how we love our neighbor as ourselves and how we live out the kingdom right now, they're supposed to say, there must be a kingdom there. There's a kingdom down below that. There's something to what they're doing right now. That's what he's saying, okay? I could do a whole bunch more on this, but I don't have time. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. As we keep coming back to saying, Jesus, I wanna be for your kingdom. I wanna live for you, my king. I wanna live in a land of repentance and forgiveness. If I'm rebuked, I want to repent. I wanna serve. I wanna be a servant because I am the vultures that's telling the world this thing is real. There's a real body to this thing. This thing is eternal and it lasts. That's what we're supposed to be. So, Jesus, send us out as vultures. May we be a group of people that the way we fly, the way that we look, signals to the world that's watching that there is a king and there is a kingdom and it's brilliant and it's beautiful and it's the water of life and the king says to all, come and drink freely. May we be those that demonstrate your kingdom. And we ask this in your name. Amen.